today's New Testament message is 2 Corinthians 6. But we're going to start in, as we do every Sunday, the Proverbs. We're still in Proverbs 12, just one verse, Proverbs 10. I'll read it while you're turning the pages. It says, A righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. Well, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 25.4 said not to prohibit an ox from treading or from eating the grain. Don't muzzle an, an ox while he's working for you. So if you have an ox and he's pulling a plow, you don't want to muzzle him. You know, the poor thing sees all this grain falling. He's working all day. He doesn't get a chance to lick any of it up. So even God cared for the animals uh, in his law. Uh, another scripture is Deuteronomy 22.10. And this is really cool. And I didn't time it this way, but it's really going to coincide with our New Testament Sunday or message. It's Deuteronomy 22.10, it says, Do not equally yoke animals. Don't unequally yoke a donkey with an ox. And the theory behind that is, again, you'd have to understand farming communities back then. Everybody farmed. And uh, a yoke was something that looks sort of like a lowercase m without the tail on the left side. And it was made of wood, and it would go over the shoulders of two animals. And in the center, there would be a long rod or um, heavy uh, thongs of leather that would pull a plow. And what would happen is these two animals would have to work together to pull the plow. But if you had a very large, strong animal yoked with a small, weaker animal, it could cause chafing, it could cause injury, uh, and it certainly wouldn't be effective for plowing. So, you know, it would be cruel to the animals to do that. The law said not to do it. So, yes, God does care about the animals. Even the, uh, the way the Jews would slaughter the animals for food. It was done with a very sharp knife, and it was done in such a, such a way that the animal wouldn't have any fear. Uh, and actually, I read this book, The Maker's Diet, from a Jewish believer, and he said that we should eat kosher meat today because the way meat is slaughtered today, uh, mass-produced, it's done in a way that causes fear in the animal, and the adrenaline can come out in the meat. Very interesting concept. So, yes, this message was brought to you by the people for the ethical treatment of animals. <laughs> Just kidding. I had to say that because they're kind of on the other extreme, certainly, where they, uh, you know, have animals equal with humans or, or even better, and they want to give them lawyers and all this weird stuff. So we're not even going to go into that. But animals are helpless in human captivity, and God wanted us to treat living things with kindness. As a matter of fact, you can tell a lot about a person the way they treat an animal, the way they treat a pet. If they're abusive, something's not going right up, upstairs. Something, there's an issue there, Right? And then the rest of it says, but the tender mercies of the wicked, which seem like an oxymoron, the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. And it's said that way for a reason. This person is so heartless, so self-centered, so wicked, that even when they think they're doing a nice thing by their standards, to a reasonable person's standards, it's cruel. So they just don't get it, right? So the last time, as you're turning forward to 2 Corinthians 6, The last time in our 2 Corinthians study, we saw what it means to be a new creation in Christ. And today we're going to see more of what it means to be in ministry. And really a a call for separation by the Apostle Paul of Christians to be separated from the pollutions of the world. 2 Corinthians 6, starting with verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, now here he's jumping back to an Old Testament scripture, quote, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you, end quotes. 
And he goes on to say, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, there's a twofold message in here, and the, the lesser one, I would say, is that Paul is using this Old Testament scriptures to encourage the Corinthians to really see that they shouldn't take the grace of God in vain. They shouldn't take salvation lightly, that their behavior should start to emulate their uh, their, their belief systems, and it's really a call for maturity. But there's a reason why he quotes Isaiah 49, and I'm going to get to that. So the last thing we saw with the Apostle Paul was that in chapter 5, where we left off, he said that Jesus was the sacrifice, that he paid for our sin, that he shed his blood for the remission of our sin, the atoning sacrifice. And we now are ambassadors from his kingdom to a lost and dying world. And we talked about that, two worlds in collision. We become born again of the Spirit of God. We are a child of God. Um, John tells us that we're now adopted into God's family. So what do we do? We look at everyone else who is still in the world, and we encourage them, we plead them, we implore them, we beg him, beg them, as we read last week. Your ship is sinking. Here's the life preserver, and his name is Jesus. Grab onto it, okay? Look at everything around you. This world is dying. It's going to destroy itself. So we're ambassadors from, from God's kingdom to the kingdom of the world, to those who still haven't believed. Right? That's setting the stage for you. So, we have this universal call to salvation. Don't ignore God's grace. It's not something to toy with. As a matter of fact, Paul adds, now is the time to receive. Today is the day of salvation. Now, let's just go back to Isaiah 49 for a moment, because this was written 800 years before Christ, give or take a few years. And Isaiah 49 is a messianic scripture. Everyone back then, the rabbis would all agree that this was looking forward to the Messiah. So there's a few things here. In Isaiah 49, it actually prophesies Christ's atoning sacrifice. It looked forward to Christ's sacrifice. We look back, because we live in 2010 BC, they were looking forward in the future. It was also a call to salvation and to show the, uh, really the events of the second coming of the Messiah, events even in our lifetime that haven't been fulfilled yet, that still have to be fulfilled. So when you go into uh, prophecy, it can be a little confusing. What's happening in the past? What's happening today? What will happen in the future? God sees it all at the same time. For us, we kind of have to decipher through it a little bit. What's been fulfilled? What has to be fulfilled? Isaiah 55, another messianic prophecy. He says, everyone who, who thirsts, come to the water. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and many others. And let me just wrap it up with Acts 2, 21 in Pentecost. Right, the day of Pentecost. G, uh, Peter said, and he was quoting uh, Joel, the Old Testament prophet Joel in chapter 2. In verse 21, he says, It'll, It shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this was something that the Jews looked forward to. And in the first century, with the apostles quoting these Old Testament scriptures and saying, this is happening right now, the Jews were excited, right? We look at it, oh, he's quoting the Old Testament, but you have to understand the mindset back then. God's actual prophecies were being fulfilled in their midst. This was an exciting thing that they were looking for, right? Now, one other thing to look at here is we look at Jesus' resurrection. Jesus says, if I am lifted up, I draw all, all peoples unto myself, right? We look at Pentecost. We see the fulfillment there. We look at Corinth. Paul's making an application to Corinth. But also we see it today in New Jersey in 2010. No different. 
No different. That day, that window of opportunity has opened up for everyone. And don't miss this, because I'm speaking to you right now. If you don't know Jesus, if you don't know what the Bible says, if you don't realize that God is calling you, today is the day of salvation. Don't pass this up. It's important. Don't take God's offer lightly, because this is the most important life-changing decision you will ever make, and it has eternal ramifications. But don't wait too long, because the Bible's clear. There will come a time in, in our future where that window of grace will end, and it'll be a time of the tribul tribulation. It'll be a terrible time. And yes, according to the tribulation, there were saints that were martyred. People could still get saved, but it was a very difficult time period. So just um, don't take God's offer lightly. And we'll talk about that at the end of the message. Verse 3, he says, Paul says, We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. And I want to stop there. He's saying that we strived not to hinder salvation by our actions. Practice what we preach. Good principles of ministry here. They didn't want their lives to send the wrong message. And James 3.1 says that we in ministry will be held to a higher standard. But what about the average believer? Does that mean that it's only the pastors and the elders and the people in ministry that, and the average believer is kind of, they can do what they want? Well, I would tell you something different. We have to ask ourselves, are we reflecting Jesus to our friends who aren't saved, right? To our classmates, to our coworkers. When people see us, what do they see? Are we a hindrance to the gospel in some ways, maybe through hypocrisy? Or are we radiating Christ's life? These are important questions because Paul asked that of themselves. Are we Christians only on Sunday? What do we do for the rest of the week? Right? He goes on. He says, we're ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, and in fasting. So the first category that Paul speaks about here is sufferings in ministries, distresses. The Greek root word is steno. And in the English, in medicine, we get the word stenosis from, or that narrowing when your bones start to come together in your spine and the nerve gets pinched. It literally means to force into a narrow place, and it produces pain. Any of you who have a pinched nerve would know that situation. So this is an interesting word. The Apostle Paul, those who were in ministry, were forced into these narrow places, into these difficult positions, and sometimes it caused pain in their lives. They suffered much to bring God's message of salvation. The quote last Sunday by Dr. Jowett says that ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Paul and his team sacrificed big time to further the gospel. But he didn't brag about his, his ministry. If you notice that, if anything, he often deferred to what the world would perceive as failures in his ministry. He deferred to distresses in his ministry. And I would ask the question, we've been going through these books long enough, where does that leave the prosperity gospel? where God wants us to be wealthy all the time and healthy all the time and never have any problems in our lives. It doesn't fit in here with the scripture, I'll tell you that. But what have we as individuals suffered or sacrificed for the gospel, for the kingdom? What have we sacrificed at all in America? If I was a pastor in Colombia, by the end of the service, the FARC guerrillas could burst into our church and start mowing us down with AK-47s. If I was a pastor in Sudan, 
The government planes could fly over our church and drop bombs, blowing the place up and crippling our children. They really suffer for the gospel. Just to come to church, you're taking your life into your own hands. But, hey, we're pretty cool, right, with the authorities. They allow us to do this, no problems. We can walk out of here freely and not be marked. So what have we suffered in America? Does our generation even know what it means to suffer or sacrifice? I was at a business some time ago, and uh, there was two teenage girls in the business, and they were talking about, you know, from different families, how they were having trouble and problems in their lives. And I suggested church or God or reading the Bible. And, you know, they said, well, church would kind of be a problem for us because, you see, we live at home. We go out late Friday and Saturday night. We come in late. We don't wake up until one in the afternoon. And then we shop. <laughs> and they proceeded to tell me about, you know, maybe they thought it was impressive, but one of them had a handbag that cost $1,000. And the other one said, and the Tyra Banks model coming out is $10,000. That's unconscionable. To pay that much money for somebody else's name on your product. Shameful. If we do that, do we also give to the poor? We'll all stand in judgment one day. And I don't say this to be mean. I say this to give us all, including myself, a warning sign. God warns us through his word. Do we sacrifice? I remember my grandparents. I used to think it was gross, man. It didn't matter if it was the pig, the chicken, or the cow. They ate pickled pig's feet and cow's brains and cow's stomach. That stuff was nasty. But back then, they couldn't afford to just have steaks every night. They had to use every part of the animal. They knew what it meant to sacrifice, and they sacrificed for their children and, that, and their grandchildren. I, I worry about this generation. I worry about my own generation, because we don't really sacrifice a whole, a whole lot. Remember, poverty in America is much different than poverty in India. Big difference. Talk to some missionaries. And I believe that God will judge us on our self-indulgent lifestyles, especially if we're believers. Verse 6, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. So the second category he speaks about, and I'll try to break these up, are pretty much character traits for ministry. By purity, don't confuse that with sinlessness, purity. Being blameless, being clean, not contaminated by the world, being in the world, but not getting dirty from it and contaminated by it. Two, by knowledge, understanding the things of God, the wisdom of the ages. Three, long-suffering is a fruit of the Spirit. It's patience, often with difficult situations and sometimes difficult people. And four, kindness, also a fruit of the Spirit. Five, by the Holy Spirit. Don't leave home without him. The Holy Spirit, I, I took that from a, something else, but the Holy Spirit is the powertrain. It's the drivetrain. It's the dynamo to any ministry. Can't do it without the Holy Spirit. You can. A lot of people fake it, but there's no power in it. By sincere love, that means without hypocrisy. Not a lot of the phony stuff you see today. That word, I'm sorry, and I love you is thrown around way too loosely. Right? A lot of people throw around, I love you, but they don't show it in their actions. Part of love, a deeper love, is a self-sacrificial love. I would say that a love that doesn't cost anything accomplishes nothing also. By the word of truth, 
Ministry means nothing if the truth of God's word is not in the foundation because, you know, cults do good works. Actually, good works and good deeds and charity is a multi-billion dollar industry and probably a multi-trillion dollar industry when we look at it worldwide. But what good is doing good things and helping people financially and feeding them if when they die they're just they're, they're going to be damned? What, what good is that? With the good deeds, with the good works need to be the truth of God. That has to be the foundation. Otherwise, it means nothing. Eight, by the power of God. Jesus said, with man, but the disciples looked at things, and Jesus said, no, nah, it's not possible with man. But with God, all things are possible. And by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left hand. You see, again, back in those days, you would see farms. You would see simple things grinding at the mill, and you would constantly see Roman garrisons. You would see Roman troops passing by. They would march by with their shields. And they, what they would have is they'd have their helmets, they'd have their uh, you know, breastplates, but they would have a shield in the left hand. It was a pretty large shield. You had to be in good physical shape. And they had a sword in the right hand. And this is how they defended themselves or how they advanced. They would dig in deep. They would use their shields, use their swords, use their shields, use their swords. And together they would advance on, on land or uh, to take property or to, to take down an enemy. And that's how they would fight. But of course the Apostle Paul is speaking about this in a spiritual sense. We go forth with the sword of the Spirit. The Bible tells us that. And we defend ourselves from the onslaughts of the devil with the shield of faith. Understand? We defend ourselves with the shield of faith. Unfortunately, today, too many don't have those weapons, right, in our generation. They can't withstand an attack from the enemy. When the enemy comes, when there's a trial, there are believers who just completely panic and go into worldly mode. Why? Because they don't have the strength. They don't have the foundation. They don't have the spiritual weapons. It's almost as if you, you were coming up against an enemy greater than you, and he had the equipment, and you didn't, and you just turned and ran. That's what some believers are like in our generation. They don't have these equipment. You're not going to find Jesus by texting. He's not going to text you back. <laughs> Jesus doesn't have a Facebook page or a MySpace page. Not that I know of anyway. He's not going to call you on the cell phone, and he doesn't live in the mall. You know what I'm saying? We've got to be in the Word. Seriously. And listen, we have a whole generation of young people who don't know God's word. And when another doctrine comes by, if it looks good, they'll just follow it because they don't know any better. And I don't just want to blame them. My generation is to blame. The parents, we're not teaching them. We're not teaching them in word, and we're not teaching them in deed. A generation that's defenseless, two generations that are defenseless, believers, unprepared for a spiritual attack. Right? And let me, let me just encourage you here. Yes, I'm the pastor. I know the Bible well. You come to me for Bible questions. But I got news for you. I'm no smarter than anybody sitting here. The only difference is I apply myself. I don't have any superior intelligence. Paul didn't have. Paul would, again, he would defer to his weaknesses. He didn't say, hey, I'm really smart. You got to listen to me. Paul applied himself. So we really need to apply ourselves to God's word. Verse 8. By honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. The third category, the consequences of ministry. By honor and dishonor, some gave Paul the respect of an apostle, some treated him pretty shamefully. No worries, no matter. God's will was still going to be done. 
evil by evil and good report. Again, some spoke favorably about Paul's ministry. And let me correct myself, God's ministry, because he always submitted himself to the hand of God. Others tried to sabotage because of jealousy, competition, or even blind hatred. Don't be surprised if you're a nominal believer and you, you are just so convicted and you're, the Lord is speaking to you in prayer and you just say, you know what, I'm going to serve the Lord. That's it. I spent all these years serving myself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve the Lord. Now's the day for me. And then all of a sudden you get attacks. You get those that don't like you. You get uh, opposition. Don't be surprised. Because wherever the Lord is doing a great work, the devil is also there to try to take it down. Deceivers, and yet true. They were slandered, called deceivers, lied about, right? But God knew the truth. They were always in the truth. To be unknown, but yet well-known. Remember we talked about last Sunday in that proverb? Unknown, not esteemed by the world. The world wasn't really impressed by Paul, right? But God knew them. And that's more important because Jesus said that many will come to him in a future time, right? Day of judgment. And uh, they will say, Jesus, you know, we did miracles. We did good works. We did all this stuff. And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. So who do you want to be known by? The world? CNN? Or do you want to be known by Jesus? Right? That's important there. He says that um, dying but yet living. Death was often at their door. And their flesh was being killed, but they were living. He was kept alive for God's purposes. And he also had eternal life. Chastened and not killed. This word chastened is interesting because it's also used as a discipline, uh, disciplinary procedure in training up a child. So maybe you can chalk up everything that happened, even to killing the flesh or to being disciplined or even discipled, but not killed. Only the power of life and death resides in God's hand and, and nobody else. So God's chastening and discipline perfected them. Sorrowful, but yet rejoicing. They received many emotional hurts. You can see that the Apostle Paul wears his heart on his sleeve. He, he, he's very transparent about his, how he felt and, and his emotions and his love for the Corinthians. But you can see also when reading these letters, he, he received a lot of hurts. But countless joys in the spiritual realm. You see these paradoxes, right? They're all one or the other, rich, poor. Uh, good, bad, living, dying. There's a lot of you know, extremes here. And really, the, if, you, if you take the dichotomy and you cut it down, it's really what happens in the temporal or the world versus the spiritual. He says that uh, being poor but also being rich. Paul lived the life of a vagabond but had riches in heaven. When preaching the gospel, others received the riches and partake of the riches that he had. Having nothing yet possessing all things. Regardless of the financial situation, if we're saved, we possess all things. And we've spoken about that before. We are the king's kids. If we've trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we've been grafted into God's family. He is the king. We are the king's kids. To me, this reminds me of believers who keep striving for stuff in this world. I got to have more. I got to have more. I got to have more. It reminds me of king's children playing in the palace and going into the museum room. And the children, the king's children, stealing the stuff from the museum room and putting it in their pillowcase and hoarding it in their room. What they don't realize is they are heir to everything. The palace, the archives, the gold, they have it all. But in their infantile or immature minds, they're taking things because they don't realize that it's, it's, it's theirs. And believers, when we strive for the things of the world, the Bible says for eternity, we possess all things. And what is waiting for us is, is incredible. And everything here is paltry compl uh, compared to that.
So sufferings and consequences did not affect Paul's service to the Lord. It made no difference. He didn't compromise. And the question is, do we compromise in our lives? Do we compromise? Yes, I know I'm a believer. Yes, I know I'm born again. Yes, I know the word. But you know, God, you know, his timetable, I'm not really sure about what he's doing here. Maybe he wants me to do this now and get this, right? Are we compromising? Because we're, we're not trusting in him and what he'll do and his promises. Verse 11, he says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Paul's really bearing his heart out here. He loves them as a spiritual father and desired that reconciliation with them. Did, did all the Corinthians have a problem with Paul? No, they were factions. But even the, the ones, you know, the, the shepherd, they have, uh, he has 99 sheep because one went astray. He always tries to go after that last sheep and rejoices when he finds that one sheep that got out of the pen. So Paul loved the Corinthians and even that small faction that were just slandering him and giving him a hard time. I'm sure he didn't care about the personal assaults, but he loved them and he knew that wasn't good for their spiritual life. So this is what he says. Now, why is this here? It is possible that after sharing all of what he's done, the uh, consequences of ministry, uh, character traits, the trials of ministry, that, and then sharing his heart here, maybe it's possible that um, they might change their hearts, especially towards him, and be more obedient. Love and appreciation are human desires. Um, maybe, you know, even with us, when we pour into others, think about your kids. You pour into your children. You pour into your children. You pour your heart into your children. You're emotional with your children. You want to make sure you, they know how much you love them. And, you know, as they grow up, you just want to see that they, they head in the right direction. And that makes you smile. All that effort, all that self-sacrifice, all makes it worthwhile. Well, these were like children to Paul. He loved them. He poured so much into them. And he really wanted them to have a good spiritual walk. Even if you're discipling someone. If you've ever discipled someone, you pour yourself into them. They're not even family. But somehow the Lord brings the two of you together and you pour and you pour and you pour and you just want to see them mature in the Lord and then go out and do the same thing, right? That's what Jesus did, one person at a time. But what happened was the pain and hurt came when there was no reciprocity. The reciprocity lended to the breakdown in the relationship. Now, I don't know the exact hierarchical structure at the time of Corinth. I know what the Bible says about church hierarchy, but this was still in its formative stage. I don't know if they had fully a, a pastor over it or a bishop or whatever, but you could say that Paul was like a pastor to them. I just want to read um, what Warren Wearsby says. I like the way he sums things up about this situation. Just so you understand the, the, the things that are going on, the, 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 you know, the, the dynamics, the personal dynamics. He says, as you read 2 Corinthians, you get the strong impression that the church did not really appreciate Paul and the work he had done for them. They should have been defending Paul and not forcing him to defend himself. The Corinthians were boasting about the Judaizers who had invaded the church, and yet the Judaizers had done nothing for them. So Paul reminded them of the ministry God had given him at Corinth. And a sister in, in this fellowship sent me an email, and I thought it was funny, again, on, along the same lines. It's actually called The Perfect Pastor. This is good. You'll like this. It says, The perfect pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes. He condemns sin but never hurts anybody's feelings. He works from 8 in the morning until midnight and is also the church janitor. 
He is 29 years old, but has 40 years experience. He makes 15 house calls a day and is always in the office. Right? What is church? Seriously, what is church? Was it that Paul didn't do enough for the Corinthians? Did they want more from him? When the, did Johnny come lately, the Judaizers had came and promised them all these things that their affections and their loyalties switched? What is church? Church was designed for the ecclesia to be called out of the world, to be gathered together. It didn't have to be in a building. As a matter of fact, the early churches were in caves a lot of times. Uh, and believers got together with like interests, and they worshiped God as a body. However, here's the thing about church and what's changed over the years. In the beginning, church was designed that everybody was a part of the body. Everyone had a part. Everyone used their gifts and talents to, to uh, make the church more functional. And what happened over time was church became, well, we're busy. We've got things to do. We want to know what we can get out of church, but we don't want to put anything into it. And that's not biblical. Verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols, for you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, and he quotes back to the Old Testament, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people, end quote. Then he says, therefore, goes back to the Old Testament again, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So some in Corinth made bad choices, had bad influences, and Paul's appeal was two things. Number one, to keep them from being poisoned. They had the truth, but they were being poisoned with false doctrine. The other thing that was happening, and we covered this, was kind of still bad, but on the other end of the spectrum, they were being diluted. And we talked about how even today, many preachers water down the gospel because they're looking for big numbers in their church, and they're looking for people to joyously tithe because they really like the message. Okay, There's a word for that, but it's not called being a pastor. All right, so they didn't, he didn't want them to be poisoned and he didn't want them to be diluted. And it comes full circle again with our Proverbs study about being unequally yoked. Remember the stronger, larger animal yoked with the smaller, weaker animal and the injury that it can cause? And it would be actually cruel. So what we did was when we read First and Second Corinthians, we saw when Paul speaks about not being unequally yoked, he told them, why are, you, why are you going to the pagan courts? Two Christians are, are arguing. Settle it in the church. They were going to these heathen pagan judges, and of course they're not going to rule of co- according to God's wisdom. That was an unequally yoking. Of course he told them, some of them, because there was prostitution houses, legitimate and legal, in Cor- Corinth, he was saying, believers, stay away from prostitutes. What, what, have you, what are you doing? You're, you're merging the temple of the Holy Spirit with the temple of, you know, uh, of satanic. Uh, and he also told them not to hang out in idols' temples. Again, that unequally yoking. But here's a few more, and I'm sure you've heard them. In a marriage, don't be unequally yoked. Now, the Bible says, listen, if two, people come to, if two people are unbelievers and one gets saved, don't divorce the one who's not saved. It's not a cause for divorce. You know, um, stay with them. Make that commitment because marriage is a, a strong bond there. However, if you're thinking about getting married, don't yoke yourself with an unbeliever. All right? So here's the example. Uh, person A on fire for the Lord 
is dating person B, not on fire for the Lord, or is not really interested, they, but they love each other and all this kind of stuff, and they get married. Well, could it work? Absolutely. It's risky. It's going against God's work, but it can work. However, the problem comes in where the person who's dragging, right, like the unequally yoke, the animal that's dragging, and the other one's trying to pull, it becomes wearisome after a while and tiresome. So on fire for the Lord, kind of gets their fire for the Lord kind of put out a little bit. And that's the problem with being unequally yoked, right? They may give in just for the sake of peace. The second uh, example, business partner. If you are a believer, you're a strong believer on fire for the Lord, and you go into business with somebody who's not, it can, be, it can cause a lot of problems. You know, you may have different views. They may want to have two sets of books so the government can't see what's coming in. They may have a certain way to treat their employees, and you may want to do it differently. So now what you're doing is you're unequally yoking yourself. You're marrying yourself to that unbeliever in a legal binding partnership. And if you want to get out, there's a lot of problems with that. Um, here's another one. Unequally yoking with carnal believers. Loving to hang out with a crowd that enjoys gossip or doing things wrong or stealing or and there's no conviction because you know you're Christians they're Christians and you, you kind of have these friendships and you know, nobody else knows you don't convict them they don't convict you and the, and the situation works so that's something that I threw in there um, God will cause separation and pain in a situation like that because he loves you uh, eventually you two may be at each other's throats and then assailing uh, insulted each other and what you did well I know what you did and I know your secret and boom 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 and it, it becomes messy so don't unequally yoke yourself with carnal believers it can only be heartache verse 15 he says what is communion or what accord has Christ with Belial Belial was just an epithet for Satan meaning perverted or worthless what accord not Honda accord but the Greek word is symphonesis in the English we get the word symphony from now, if you remember last week, we had the full worship team up here, six different instruments. What if they all started playing at the same time and competing with each other? The piano, the guitar, the drums, and who can bang the loudest? And we'd all be like this with our fingers in our ears. It would be a cacophony, not a symphony. But there was harmony there. You know, they, there was a symphony. There was an accord. They deferred to one another. They took turns and gave each other a turn to play their instruments. There's an accord there. And that's the way our life can be. You know that things are flowing. You have an accord with, with believers. You have an accord with people with like interests, even those that you're discipling. But if you start yoking yourselves with these unholy alliances, all it's going to do is cause problems. If you are on fire for the Lord and you marry yourself to these situations, things are going to get very difficult in your life. And then one day you'll find yourself with a fire that's only about this big and saying, Lord, how did I get here? So there's no symphony there. There's no accord there. Verse 16 through 18. Again, he uses a compilation of several Old Testament scriptures. Why? To convey this picture, that God was among his people, but he couldn't have that intimate fellowship with his people if they were engaging willfully in evil practices at the time. And Paul uses the applications for the Corinthians also. There's no room in God's church for mixed loyalties and compromise. Now, he does make the distinction between separation versus isolation. Because Jesus is always the best example. And you can never go wrong with that. See, Jesus always ministered to the thieves and the prostitutes and the downcast of society, uh, the ones who had turned from God, and the tax collectors. He ministered with them. He ate with them but he didn't become contaminated by them. 
See, there's the difference. He didn't isolate himself from them either. He was probably spent more time with them than anybody else because he loved them. However, you'll never see in the scripture that Jesus and Zacchaeus and Matthew, the tax collectors, all got together to become incorporated and have a business called divine tax accounting. You know what I'm saying? It didn't happen. You see? So he was separate from them, but he ministered to them, and he wasn't isolated from them. Now, Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 5, to not isolate yourself from the world. We need to know the difference. Now, here's the extreme. Two extremes. Christians have worldly friends, worldly cliques, or somebody is not a believer, has worldly friends, worldly cliques, become saved, become Christians, and then get rid of all their old friends, get rid of their unbelieving doctor, accountant, a mechanic, and they just hang out with Christian people, Christian doctors, Christian mechanics. I went through all this. You're completely in a Christian bubble. You, there's no, no salt and light. That's wrong. That's isolation. I, I would vehemently dispute anybody on that account, and I've seen it. It becomes a Christian, clicky, cultish kind of community, right? No salt and light. Now, the other extreme are believers who marry themselves with corrupting influences, and they're happy leading a double life. That's the other extreme, right? And it comes down to this. Don't yoke, don't chain, don't marry self to ungodly situations. And really, it comes down to this. Who is influencing who, right? If you are with somebody and you have a close friend who doesn't know the Lord, and they're not mocking you every time they see you, and they're not trying to get you to deny your faith, that's not love, but they're willing to listen, they're willing to have harmony with you, that is one thing, right? Who's the stronger influence? If you find yourself being with others and you find yourself that when they're influencing you for the negative, that's when the light bulb should go off and something to think about. You see, Jesus, when he went to a dead body to raise somebody from the dead, technically touching a dead body, he was defiling himself. But Jesus, his influence was more powerful. He would come and he could say a word and that person would have new life brought into them and he could take them by the hand. They weren't dead anymore. Jesus was always the stronger influence. The dead flesh didn't defile him so he was ceremonially unclean. The power of God went into that dead flesh and revived it and brought it back to life. So there's a great example. And we can just say this, and I'll close it with this. I'm sure everyone right now, as I'm speaking, is thinking about something. You're thinking about your friends. You're thinking about your business partners. You're thinking about your fiance. You're thinking about your workmates. And you're asking yourself, think about it. Who am I, what unholy alliances do I have in my life? What alliances, what yokings in my life do I really have to consider? And, and I have to ask myself, am I being influenced by those in the world or am I influencing them positively for Jesus? Those are the important questions to ask ourselves because verse 17 and 18 really sum it up. God says, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. The Lord cannot be involved with a triangle of an unholy alliance. He can't do it. So the best reason for not being unequally yoked with corrupt influence is that God can't be in the midst of that. Because when all the dust settles, if we call ourselves Christians, what is our utmost desire? Is to be closer to God, is to be like Jesus, is to be changed into his image. And that's something that we need to consider. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we love your word. 
as always, your truths are, speak volumes to us. And uh, 